Hello and welcome to Everyday Medicine. I'm Dr. Luke and I'd like to thank you for joining on this podcast series where we share conversations with colleagues, exploring their special interests in medicine and bringing insights, ideas and advice which I hope will be applicable for our medical practices. This podcast episode, we're talking with an expert about the Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. But before starting, for Australian audiences, listening does give you eligibility for your CPD, so log in and add this as an activity. You may also consider journaling, reflection, and adding to the review and performance section in your CPD. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, ADHD, is a chronic condition, including difficulty maintaining attention and characterised by hyperactivity and impulsiveness. ADHD often begins in childhood and can persist into adulthood and reflects an ongoing pattern of behaviour that results in poor concentration and control of impulses and interferes with functioning and or development. It may contribute to low self-esteem, troubled relationships and difficulty at school or work. ADHD is one of the most common neurodevelopmental disorders of childhood. It's estimated that 1 in 20 children in Australia have ADHD. The diagnosis in adults is also on the rise, where it's estimated that fewer than 20% of adults with true ADHD are currently diagnosed or treated by a psychiatrist. Well, in helping to formulate a diagnosis in a child with ADHD, we might consider a child who daydreams for prolonged times, or forgets or loses things frequently, squirms or fidgets, talks too much, a child who may make careless mistakes or take unnecessary risks, have a hard time resisting temptation, have trouble taking turns or have difficulty getting along with others. And there are three different ways ADHD often presents, and this does depend on which type of symptoms are strongest in the individual. These presentations include a predominantly inattentive presentation, where it's hard for the individual to organise or finish a task, to pay attention to details, or to follow instructions or conversations. The person is easily distracted or forgets details of daily routines. Another presentation is a predominantly hyperactive, impulsive presentation where the person fidgets and talks a lot. It's hard for them to sit still for long, for example, during a meal or while doing homework. Smaller children may run, jump or climb constantly. The individual feels restless and trouble with impulsivity. Someone who is impulsive may interrupt others a lot, grab things from people or speak at inappropriate times. It's hard for the person to wait their turn or listen to directions. A person with impulsiveness may have more accidents and injuries than others. There's also a combined presentation where symptoms of the above two types are equally present in the person. Well, I was curious in this podcast to explore ADHD in more detail and was hoping to gain insight into its neurobiology and the long-term consequences for patients with ADHD, especially if not diagnosed. I was also keen to explore the concept of late birth date effect where a younger child in a school year group may be diagnosed with ADHD and medicated at a higher rate than older classmates, possibly as a misdiagnosis, reflecting the relative immaturity of the student rather than a true developmental condition. A new companion guide recently published in Australia is referred to as the Australian Evidence-Based Clinical Practice Guideline for Attention Deficit Disorder. It's designed to help parents and others understand ADHD and the different ways of managing it. It makes 113 recommendations about recognising, diagnosing and treating the condition. And whilst generally well received, these clinical practice guidelines have drawn some criticism from child child psychiatrists for recommending amphetamine medications for children as young as five years diagnosed with ADHD 
based on their impulsive, active or inattentive behaviour. And some specialists have criticised this decision for relying on low-quality evidence. So this warrants discussion also. Contrasting this, and interestingly, a recent evidence uh, gathered from observational and registry studies indicates that pharmacological treatment of ADHD is associated with increased achievement and decreased absenteeism at school, reduced risk of trauma-related emergency hospital visits, reduced risks of suicide and attempted suicide, and decreased rates of substance abuse and criminality. I was also hoping to learn more about cognitive training and non-pharmacologic techniques that may be of value, such as neurofeedback. It was a great pleasure to welcome back to Everyday Medicine Associate Professor Suma Basu, who has a special interest in developmental disabilities, including ADHD and autism spectrum disorder. Suma is a fellow of the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists and is a senior lecturer at the Department of Psychological Medicine, Monash University, with other keen interests in youth mental health and developmental trauma. He provides expertise both at the St John of God Langmore Centre in Berwick and in Warrigal Gippsland. Please enjoy this conversation with Suma. Uh, Dr. Suma Basu, thank you for joining me again. I really appreciate it. Uh, welcome to Everyday Medicine. We've had a very interesting conversation recently about autism. And tonight, we're going to talk about attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, um, which is said to be one of the most common neurodevelopmental disorders uh, that we diagnose. And I understand about one in 20 children and adolescents are diagnosed with ADHD. I'm very excited to hear you take us through, uh, give us a little primer on this, uh, this syndrome, how we diagnose it and how we approach management, what the various management strategies are and um, your experience in treating patients. So are you happy to, to uh, just give us a little primer on ADHD? You know, how, do we, how do we approach the diagnosis? Yeah, look, um, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, you know, um, is, is, as you have said, one of the perhaps the most commonest of all neurodevelopmental disorders. It is, like all neurodevelopmental disorders, it can be very tricky because it, comorbidity is a rule. So it come with, comes with comorbid conditions. Uh, commonly, uh, the common presentation is often not the ADHD presentation. It can be behavioral difficulties, in learning difficulties, um, you know, socialization difficulties, impulse control difficulties. So the clinical presentation can be, uh, so it has got two components, as you can, as you can hear from the, um, the diagnosis itself, attention deficit. And then high uh, attention deficit, and then hyperactivity. The mm -hmm. hyperactivity part can be very visible. The, the condition can also just be purely in a variety, where the child um, you know might not present the, with with um, hyperactivity at all, and it can be very difficult to pick up those cases. They can be inattentive. They can be off with their fairies, not being able to focus, uh, driven to distraction. And then this variety of ADHD, often present in girls, are often missed, you know. And but mm -hmm. the commonest variety is the combined variety where there is hyperactivity, where the child is not being able to sit at one place, always on the go, constantly doing something, accident prone, coordination difficulties, you know, um, jumping, accident prone, running away, you know. And then and, and 
as a result of that they can be a prop they can be problematic at home they can be problematic at um, at school um, they um, they have to be managed more they have they will be scolded more and uh, as a result because this is a driven neuro neurodevelopmental disorder this is children tend to become more defiant because they are experiencing so many negativity of mm -hmm. all their life and then they said that i can't deal with this i can't manage this so i will just not give a damn about it learning can be impacted because if you are always on the go how will you learn you know, you know so learning can be impacted um, reading writing spelling can be impacted you know mathematics which which these lots of concentration can be impacted while they are playing sport that can be impacted because if you are you know not uh, not being able to take other people's perspective it needs so much of focus and concentration to play a sport you know team sports they can you know if, if they are dreamy and inattentive it can impact them you know so it, it has a global impact on multiple layers and um, and often as a result of that and they can become either externalizing like aggression and also it can have you know, they can be internalizing you know because if they are their confidence breakdown they can be anxious and as a result of their anxiety you know they can often feel uh, that they can't do it they can they can resist doing anything um, and and as a result a lot of these children present with anxiety uh, as a secondary condition right. Right. and if you if you just have anxiety you know you can have attentional attention difficulties so then when they present at a older age which they often do especially the inattentive variety then it is so difficult to uh, you know figure out whether they have Yeah, attention deficit as such, or is it anxiety, or anxiety causing the attention deficit or not? So the clinical presentation can be really complex, you know, mm, and when it is not picked up earlier, and uh, you know, the uh, uh, the hyperactivity and impulsivity is easy to pick up, inattentive variety difficult to pick up, and and comorbidity is a rule. So it's a complex presentation. There was this uh, idea of that late. Birth date effect that I've read that uh, younger children in a school year group being diagnosed with um, and medicated more for ADHD than the average person in their in their class, sort of implying that maybe a, there's a maturity issue in some cases. I, I guess that's just that that's just creates a diagnostic problem. Like like how do you dis distinguish maturity from immaturity from this condition? That that study came from Western Australia. It's a powerful study, you know, and there's a very powerful study showing, you know, sometimes uh, it it should be very, you know, very. Uh, it has got a whole lot of uh, implication in schooling, and especially kids who are born in the early part of the year, you know, say February, March, April, yes. you know, when when you take a decision about whether to put the child one year back or one year, you know, and You you know whether they want to make their children pass the exam before they turn eighteen versus so um, um, hence you know uh, it is this uh, when we are assessing a patient this is a must this question is a must the late birth effect you know and yes. whether it is just the child is slightly tad bit immature versus mm. whether they have a uh, you know um, especially inattentive ADHD and and whether they just need a bit more support and educational support you know and uh, so 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 that is a definitely a important differential diagnosis
So the frontal lobe of the person takes years to mature, and, and the, there is a lag period in ADHD. And if there is a if the child is um, immature, you know, if the child is younger than the other cohort, sometimes sometimes in a classroom there can be a one year gap between the oldest versus yeah. youngest. You know, the December yeah. born versus sure. a yeah. February born, there can be a big difference. You know, uh, so. Um, and as a result, the child can be more immature, they can be socially more immature, they're psychologically more immature, and they're much more um, prone to be uh, labeled as um, having more difficulties, and then that can be seen as ADHD. And so, it, though ADHD, ADHD can be um, underdiagnosed, overdiagnosis is a big problem, and we need to really think about so many other factors. And while doing an assessment for a young child, we definitely have to keep this in mind, the birthday effect, you know, yeah. and uh, and whether this is just uh, just immaturity or not. So when you come to the diagnosis, you're basing this on observation, uh, the maybe some communication with the child, but it's really based on observation. There's no other physical, biological test or there's, it's, there's no hard and fast test like we can take a full blood count and diagnose anemia. But with this sort of clinical problem, it's based on the observation of the behaviour over a period of time. Like how you were talking there about underdiagnosis and overdiagnosis, which I suspect is, you know, it would be very easy to fall into either of those traps. But how long does it sort of take generally for one to be sure that it is ADHD and not that late birthday defect? that might just reflect immaturity? It's just not that. It, it, there are um, many different conditions where, which can simulate ADHD. You know, if the child has anxiety, that can simulate ADHD. If the child has experienced severe trauma, you know, where they have experienced domestic violence, has been beaten up, you yes. know, has been uh, their mothers being beaten up, you know, they, they can have externalizing behavior, they can have internalizing behavior. You know, if that is autism, they can look like ADHD, yeah. you know. Um, so there are plethora of psychiatric conditions which can look like ADHD. When we are uh, when we are doing a psychiatric assessment, it is the diagnosis is not the point. It is what we really work on is a formulation. What is happening? Why is it happening? And why now? You know, there's three major questions that we have to answer, okay. and we have to answer it from a biopsychosocial point of view in all these aspects. You know why why it is happening why is it happening now so the formulation a comprehensive formulation which can include the lead bird birthday effect you know if a if a person has borderline intelligence you know if the iq is you know lower than 90 you know uh, in they, they, that can impact in their attention concentration and that can look like someone more immature is and then be diagnosed with ad so number of differential diagnosis is to be considered but we in a psychiatric assessment, and and this is the magic of psychiatry. This is the disadvantage and advantage of psychiatrists. We, you know, we can psychiatrists one, uh, you know, uh, sort of a discipline where we can do a first world treatment in a third world country. You know, and uh, we don't need any infrastructure that much. All you need is a table and a chair, and a, that's Amen. what is is the is the great advantage of psychiatry in many ways. You know, we don't have diagnostic tests as yet. You know, we are trying to find out, you know, uh, and this test that would be really needed to get into, it is so cutting edge that it's all still not devised. You know, so, to, you know, I mean, there are fMRI studies to show that there are 
you know uh, frontal lobe difficulties and people who are trying to pay attention you know neuropsychological testing right. can show that they have right. difficulties with working memory and processing speed yeah. so but but it is not always the same you know so it's not uh, it's sometimes those tests are not available so from a from a diagnostic perspective it is a clinical it is a clinical diagnosis yes. and then we have rating scales which have to which have to be done with the uh, if possible with the family and at school and both of them are observational scales then in some cases we can do a neuropsychological testing and we can find you know some of the hallmarks within the neuropsychology but there is no hallmark you know there is no diagnostic so uh, and the fascination fascinating thing with highly intelligent people with adhd would be that in the test they can do remarkably well you know so the main problem is attention and concentration but they can hyperfocus That's if they like a thing they can do it much better than others you know so mm-hmm. a lot of people with adhd if they have something that they like they can totally focus on that area like while playing video games you know they can yes. focus hyperfocus yeah. while playing video games but they can't do anything else so multitasking is a problem you know i mean it, 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 we have i've seen um, adhd in all professions you know i've had um, you know colleagues and friends who are even surgeons you know where we need the highest level of focus and they, they can have adhd you know and and somehow function well you know, with or without medication you know so fascinating it's fascinating in general is there an improvement in frontal lobe function as we become adults is there a little drop off in terms of adhd uh do we not know that no no we 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 know about it nowadays and nowadays there's because there's an explosion in diagnosis of adhd all across age group you know we know uh, a lot of what we did not know you know so so the nature of adhd actually changes as you grow older the hyperactivity uh, decreases in the hyperactivity the nature of hyperactivity decreases you know they are not as physical anymore they don't run around as much anymore but they can be much more fidgety they cannot sit at one place always you know a bit uh, moving fidgeting all the time you know uh, impulsivity impulsivity sometimes does not change you know so that the impulse the nature of impulsivity changes you know so that that uh, and that can have a massive impact on functioning you know impulsively buying things gambling you know and and it's, it's so much of external factors that can entice us with our impulsivity you know so um and this is the first time in human history we have got so much of um, things to do just impulsively you know i mean gambling was a problem now just imagine people just yeah. don't have to leave their home to gamble you know yeah. so and mm-hmm. if if a person has impulsivity you know thrill seeking is one of the major problems so yeah. it's a high hypodopaminergic state in the brain right so there's lack of you know dopaminergic some of the dopaminergic uh, you know things in some certain parts of the brain so and hence there was it needs more stimulus to stimulate that dopamine so thrill seeking is is very important and hence you know there there can be a lot of danger dangerous behavior and the and the nature of that changes and it especially in young adulthood when you are thinking that they are much better they are academically they don't have to face you know they, you are giving them opportunity to drive drink and do whatever you know so Uh, there is so much of dangerousness that can happen during that period you know of young adulthood when they are transitioning from childhood to adolescence okay. and ad- adolescence and adolescence to young adulthood so um, you know there was a there were the main problem used to be that the pediatrician did not uh, have any right to 
prescribed medication beyond the age of 18 and psychiatrists were uh, you know reluctant to pick up these cases and there was a lot of patients who would just fall through the cracks you know and then sometimes they will go into uh, the bad world of substance use and self-medication and then then they come into psychiatry with other difficult problems you know with substance use and other psychiatric disorders and marital difficulties and mm-hmm. interpersonal difficulties so uh, you know the the trajectory i mean um, about 70 to 80% of people with adhd continue to have adhd symptoms and it changes mm-hmm. from hyperactivity impulsivity to inattentiveness you know executive functioning you know high, frontal of executive functioning planning organization time management self motivation you know and 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 then in young young adulthood if they are in a structured environment with a lot of positive feedback they can flourish but if they don't have that they can just totally dwindle into a different uh, difficulty uh, you know then the next challenge uh, you know clinically the next challenge is when you have kids you know the kids don't have frontal lobe and then if you have a compromised frontal lobe the combination of the two would be a quite a big disaster and then that that brings in a lot of difficulty you know between you know parenting and difficulty with another other parent and their uh, interpersonal difficulties so it is quite a significant uh, difficulty which can be lifelong and it can have a wide ranging uh, problems across the age and it and the nature of it changes from uh, as the person um, becomes older some of the some of uh, the maturity uh, of the frontal lobe happens and it might not be as classical as hyperactive as as when he was young but the nature of it becomes problem problem you know i mean it it changes as you get older and older yeah i'm really enjoying that insight that you've just given us i, I didn't appreciate some of the complexities that you just brought up but uh, as a human brain is so it's so complicated but also so fragile i guess this leads us a little bit toward treatments and i'm curious to know about how you select patients that may receive one of the amphetamine type therapies that are available can you talk a little bit about that how you select them and what choice of medications that you would um, consider so coming I from a uh, medication is one part I mean, like uh, as i've said diagnosis is one part of the yes. treatment and the main important part is the formulation again after the diagnosis medication is one part of the treatment you know we need to again have a biopsychosocial format to the treatment pattern you know so uh from a from a as you can see you know it has got a you know uh, so much of problems with behavior planning organization so one, the psychosocial treatments are extremely important you know which is often neglected you know and uh, like uh, you know uh, planning organization time management structure you know uh, how how to really uh, help a person to have a routine reminders you know how how you can use the sticky tapes you know i mean like uh, you know this this stuff this is so important you know to put reminders all around yeah, because forgetting mm-hmm. forgetting uh, is one and apps which can help you to organize so these organizations from forgetting appointments forgetting all this so but you, you can organize yourself so well with the modern technology too that is important you know i mean often they can get into internet addiction and and then spend hours playing video games and that can be a problem so that has to be addressed you know the comorbidities you know of depression anxiety has to be addressed and because first first rule of treatment selection is comorbidity you know um and knowing the side effect profile of the medications 
if the if a person is presenting with severe depression in the background of ADHD, we have to treat the de- depression first. You know, uh, and if they are presenting with significant anxiety, we have to know the side effects of the medication. All the dexamphetamine or methylphenidate, both of them cause anxiety. So if you are already giving a patient and medication that increases anxiety and the patient is already anxious, you can have more anxiety for the patient. So that that is, so you have to treat the comorbidity quite well, you know, um, psychologically or medication-wise, you know, um, and then you, you think about the medication. The side effects of the medications are significant. You know, it can cause loss of appetite. It can cause problems with sleep. Sometimes uh, it can cause agitation, irritability, and it can also sometimes can cause, uh, you know, severe side effects like a mood disorder or psychosis, you know, because these are amphetamines, you know, so it can. So if a person is presenting with psychotic-like symptoms, it's a big no-no, you know, so the the medications are divided into two major groups, the stimulants and non-stimulants. The stimulants are of two types, the dexamphetamine and methylphenidate. And the methylphenidate, uh, we normally start with the short-acting Ritalin, you know, or methylphenidate short-acting. And then if the short-acting is doing doing well, we change it to a long-acting one because the short-acting can go up and go down. It just It is effective only for the time that the medication is in the system. And when it goes down, it, the patient can crash, you know, and when they come home after the school, they can really crash and the ADHD can be worse. So there can be a loss of appetite. It can cause growth retardation. So we have to be so careful about, uh, first of all, the diagnosis and then, then treating, treating the patients. It is about risk and benefit. And sometimes when the child is being treated with, for ADHD, their lives can totally change. They can start learning better. Their self-esteem increases. Anxiety becomes better. They can feel like a totally a different child. And it is one of the conditions, one of the treatments which can have a life-changing impact. So it can change the trajectory of a child with a good diagnosis, early diagnosis, and all the things that can happen in the future. Like, you know, uh, substance use problems is 10 times more common in ADHD. Car accidents are about 10 times more in ADHD. Chances of head injury is 10 times more with persons with ADHD. Uh, you know, teenage pregnancy is uh, you know, about 10 times more in people with ADHD. So all the psychosocial factors are there, severe, sinister problems which can be actually prevented with early diagnosis and treatment, you know, but because the because there is such a controversy around the diagnosis and treatment, you know, often they are not picked up. They are all the other conditions are picked up and not ADHD, you know, uh, which is is quite a quite an interesting phenomena until uh, date. But hopefully things will change. The other medications that we have are. Um, you know, the non-stimulant medications, we have got three out of the non-stimulant medication. One is called atomoxetine or it comes as tetera, you know, uh, and it has got a non-adrenergic and a serotonergic property. It, it has got an antidepressant-like property, but it improves attention and concentration. And then, there, then we have got guanfacine, which is a alpha-2 agonist. And like clonidine and prazosine, but guanfacine is in Australia is found in a long-acting format, and that can be very helpful. And often, if a child is presenting with severe emotional regulation difficulties, anger outbursts, which is very much flight and flight sympathetic mediated, then then we tend to choose the guanfacine, you know, and that can be quite helpful. Uh, but if a, if a person has got more depressive symptoms, uh, 
uh, we can we can choose um, atomoxetine, uh, which has got anti-anxiety, antidepressant property. So I mean, this is the this is the rule of and if a person has ticks and Tourette's, okay. you know, where it, uh, which can be worsened with antipsychotic medications, we use uh, we pick up um, you know uh, atomoxetine and guanfacine. Do, do those medications? continue generally into adult life and are they ongoing or is there a, is there a place for trying to wean people off and de-escalate treatment? Sometimes, uh, you know, this, this used to be done quite a lot, you know, and then, then uh, you know, the, often the story would be after they have stopped it yeah, with young adult life, there were, there were some improvement and then they are coming back with even more severe problems of adult life, you know. So we have to do that with extreme caution, you know, I mean, when they are not under the same roof as their parents, the parental scaffolding, parents holding the front, front, parental frontal lobe holding the frontal lobe of the child can have an amazing impact. You know, and hence, often, uh, you know, when the parents are very competent, the children are not diagnosed. You know, and then when they are yeah. going to university, you know, when the children are going to university, they tend to fall apart, you know, because the parent, there's no mother to look after. Yeah. You know, and hence, yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's quite a risky sort of a gambit. You know, I mean, often with the schools ending and they are going into adult life, and and then then they're, they're stopping the medication. It's a neurodevelopment. So it's a lifelong sort of a, you know condition in most of the cases, and hence getting off the medication. So, so the explosion in the diagnosis of a adult ADHD that we are seeing now, you know, I don't know how to explain it. It's, it's happening all over the world. You know, and my adult psychiatric colleagues are sometimes thinking, is it real? What is going on? You know, so we have to remember that in human history, we have not had so much of opportunities to be distracted. Yes, you know, many more distractions with social media. Oh, sure. so much social yeah. media, video mm -hmm. gaming, hundreds of different channels, you know, so, so much of distractibility. And we have got a vulnerable frontal lobe. So, and, and especially in young adulthood, I mean, I find it, you know, that the young adulthood is more difficult, you know, mm -hmm. than, than childhood because in childhood you have got the parents, you've got the school, you've got much more structure to your life, you go play sports Saturday, Sunday, your parents are all over you, you know, and then, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you go to university, there's no parental care, you don't have to really do it, and suddenly they start faltering, you know, they can't finish their tasks, they can't finish their assignments, and, and then they can start faltering, you know, and and when they go to going to trade and things like that, you know, sometimes they can manage it because there's not not a lot of supervision. But yeah. then once they are becoming young adults and they have to look after their children, you know, then it becomes such a big problem. You know, I mean, uh, we don't know uh, the the direct relationship between domestic violence and uh, yeah. substance use and ADHD and and the, yeah. the very yeah. nature. I mean, number of patients we see that who have been perpetrators of domestic violence at an ADHD diagnosis, which was totally stopped. Management was stopped, and then they are presenting with mm -hmm. substance use problems and ice use, and you know other difficulties in young adulthood. And by that time, it is so complicated that we don't ADHD becomes a small problem, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah that, that's a very again a very big insight and perspective on it. And I guess those patients from a young age do need to be followed up with psychiatric services long term to some degree. Keep an eye on them. I, I wonder, we've talked about what would happen if you're not treated, if it's not diagnosed, there's a whole range of issues. 
Is there an adverse adverse outcome in telling someone they've got ADHD? Is that a label that generally sits comfortably or do people? I mean, sometimes it is. I mean, what I'm seeing is when they're not diagnosed and then they're getting a diagnosis, it can be a life-changing experience for them. You know, they improve and, yeah. and but, uh, you know, uh, in, in some of the families when there is intergenerational trauma and the, the child is being medicated and the the impact of this hyperactivity as a result of the toxic environment, then the ADHD can be a mislabel, you know, and ADD, ODD, and the patients will be coming like that with all the diagnosis. AD, ADHD, ODD, CD, conduct disorder, all these labels, and the labels means nothing. You know, we need to, again, go back to the formulation, you know, and yeah. it is such a complicated uh, issue because there can be intergenerational effect. If a person, if a parent has ADHD, They've got higher chances of substance use. They've got higher chances of assortative mating and have other parents who have got ADHD. And then the home environment can be very traumatic and toxic. And as a result, the child can be impacted by the environment and the genetics. And as a result, they can have all sorts of difficulties. And ADHD diagnosis is a small part if you are not seeing the whole picture. You know, mm -hmm. so. Mm. Um, the whole picture has to be seen and it, it has to be seen it's, in its all complexities and we can't just simplify it. It's a very complex uh, phenomena and it, ADHD is definitely the missing part in many of the presentations. But if we can, if we forget the big picture, we can make a big mistake. Fascinating. Um, so fascinating. Last week, there was an Australian evidence-based clinic practice guideline for ADHD. I think these were recommendations which were designed to help recognise, diagnose it, and maybe provide some basis for, for general practitioners and patients. Do you, was that, has that been well received? They have, I have read some criticisms of it, which I, I'm not sure if they're valid or not. Probably they're not. But um, This is a well, I mean, it has actually been, most of the big research has been done by uh, Monash University. Right. You know, uh, Art Belgrove, who even lives in Berwick, you know, uh, who lives in, uh, you know, Beaconsfield, he's the, he's the chairperson of that. He's, oh, really? Okay. Very dear colleague and a friend, you yes. know, he, he's, he's trying to do the biomarkers research on ADHD, you know, to find a biomarker. This is the holy grail of psychiatry, to find a biomarker, yes. EEG marker or something like that, that can give us, a, you know, an objective evidence of ADHD. He's working on that. So some of the best minds in the country has worked, have worked together to find this guideline. And this is mm. a brilliant guideline. And huge amount of participation yeah. Uh, yeah. from the lived experience people parents, mothers, you know, and it has been a humongous effort. You know, some of my closest uh, colleagues have been involved in developing the guideline. And, uh, and so we should be proud of this guideline. And yes. yeah. I think it, it, has, it will really be a game changer in, in, uh, in diagnosis and treatment of ADHD, which presents with so many comorbidities and complexities all across life. Mm, perfect. Well, where do you see the future of management ADHD? Is it, is it improvement in the, I mean, there are lots of different aspects we've talked about, cognitive, psychosocial, you know, recognising the complications you mentioned, comorbidities, recognising those treatment. We've got these treatment stimulants, non-stimulants. Do you see something else coming? We've mentioned biomarkers there to help us perhaps... We, we don't need that. We, we have got the best treatment already available. You know, the, the best treatments are already available. You know, the treatment no. can be life-changing. You know, there's no condition in medicine where the treatment efficacy has got that level of efficacy. 97% of people with ADHD can improve. With oh, you know, early diagnosis, proper treatment, good management is the key. I, I feel that there has to be a, I mean, and this is the reason I want to do this sort of shows, you know, because 
it has to start from all levels you know because we psychiatrists won't be able to manage uh, you know and you are saying 5% sometimes it is up to 10% you know yes. one in 10 you know so yes. so huge yeah. statistics you know and, and it has to be not only well taught throughout medical school you know gp or the college of gps have to really endorse it psychiatrists have to be taught better pediatricians are really taught well you know they need to understand the psychosocial factors a bit better in you know, as far as i am concerned you know uh, but uh, you know uh, so gp nurses so that early detect schools you know the, the first thing is about you know school or school authorities remaining a little you know it used to be one of the highest very highly diagnosed conditions in the 1970s and 80s you know the medications are the same that we have had for the last 70 years you know uh, but the early diagnosis uh, and um, you know uh, a proper treatment you know and uh, and no- knowing the whole it's not just a hyperactivity but it's a how complex it can get you know uh, perhaps a conversation like what we just had uh, would be quite helpful in early life careers for uh, medical yes. students to understand yes. the the how complex this problem is you know like uh, one of the biggest problems with health is is um you know conduct disorder you know conduct disorder that leads to antisocial personality disorder and the impact of antisocial personality disorder is the biggest psychiatric condition in the world you know half of the prison population has anxiety and conduct disorder and the number one cause of conduct disorder is adhd so just imagine how the economics of treatment of adhd that can happen you know so antisocial personality disorder you know cannot be diagnosed i mean uh, so cannot be diagnosed if you don't have conduct disorder in childhood and conduct disorder is a psychiatric uh, psychiatric diagnosis in childhood you know which can be treated and number one cause of conduct disorder is adhd the other causes are trauma and you know other uh, other conditions you know uh, family distress and all but yeah. number one is adhd so the, the early diagnosis of adhd and treatment can not only change the trajectory of a person's life but a person with adhd driving not paying attention in the car and goes into a car accident and kills three people what is the cost of that you know so uh, how many road accidents are happening because of people are not attentive in the being impulsive driving a car at a, you know at a high speed doing risky stuff you know yeah. so so the the early intervention and diagnosis can have life changing impact across not only for one person but across people's lives you know i mean domestic violence and you know substance use and you know it is jail population it's just and then the other issue is you know a high number of these kids will also have learning difficulties you know and and that can have a devastating impact on their lives and their future you know their economic uh conditions and and their uh, life so uh, i i think uh, it is time to see adhd as a as a highly treatable but highly controversial sort of a condition and, and 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 we need to really understand it with all its complexities you know and understand that we need to really uh, you know it it is one missing piece it is it is this this pills are not magical but understanding the condition in its um and its complexity you know uh, has to be has to be imparted on to the students at the very beginning of their careers you know and yeah. having demystify their and and a program like this can do that well thank you so much sir that that's been a very enlightening conversation for me 
and uh, your deep insights are very much appreciated. And, and thank you for your great work in this area and uh, in educating people on this really important subject, Simon. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on this conversation with Suma Basu. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I really appreciated his expert perspective on the condition. Next week, we have another very interesting guest in Clinical Problems Review, and I hope you will join me again then. During the podcast series, we will be covering a wide range of topics across many specialty interests, and the discussions are not intended as specific medical advice for patients, but as general information only, and they reflect the opinions of the guests interviewed. Requests for new topics to be reviewed and comments about the conversation you've listened to are welcomed and may be emailed to manager at gihealth.com.au.